Uh, Lord's Day 17, is that correct? Okay, so I could do whatever. Uh, yeah, Lord's Day 17 is, I think, what we're on. Um, it's uh, the next, yeah, because we, last week we spent some extra time on that line uh, that Christ descended into hell. And so I uh, went through some of the views on that and uh, in history. There's basically four different views within the pale of orthodoxy. Um, you know, two views that are kind of strange, one that's really out there, and then the right view, the one that you should hold, uh, that Calvin and, and uh, our confessions hold, but I'm being somewhat facetious. Uh, we want to move on now in the catechism, and as the, you know, the catechism in its third sec- or se- second section, the grace section, it goes through the Apostles' Creed, and so we confess, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. We've been going through each one of these lines, uh, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And then what's the next line? <clears throat> right, that was... What was, the, what was the next line? Right, His resurrection. We confess his resurrection. Um, I know it's easy. On the, we kind of get into autopilot when we confess it, and then you're trying to think of the, the next line. It can be a little more challenging. And uh, in, in, notice at question 45, if you open up the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, you'll find it there in the back of the Psalter hymnal on page 24. Um, uh, one, one question is given to Christ's resurrection, but it's, it's a very good answer, a solid answer, that is worthy of our attention today. <clears throat> now, what, I'm, what I would like to do is, since Easter is not far away, and Easter we give our attention to Christ's resurrection, and Christ's resurrection is such an important doctrine, because uh, without this doctrine, I mean, all of Christianity hangs on this doctrine. Everything. If, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, there is nothing for, for being a Christian. Um, if he was raised from the dead, then everybody should be a Christian. It's one or the other. So, since we're coming up on Easter, what I would like to do is on Palm Sunday, I think Easter is on uh, April 16th, is that right? Okay. Uh, the week before would be, um, would be what? What's, sorry? The 9th, thank you. My math is terrible. Uh, the 9th, uh, the 9th is Palm Sunday. On the 9th, we have catechism, and so we're going to return to this doctrine. Doctrine of Christ's Resurrection. And we're going to talk a little bit about apologetics and a few other things that I think will be helpful for us. Uh, so that you know, our minds are in tune with uh, that doctrine, the time of the year that it comes up on the church calendar, especially as we often hear around the time of Easter uh, lots of uh, mainline liberal theologians on TV, network TV, uh, giving arguments against the resurrection of Christ. And so it's always good to kind of be re-equipped again on those things. We'll t- talk a little bit about them today, but we'll go through in more detail on Palm Sunday. Uh, next week, and then going, uh, what do we have here? Let's pull out my iPhone for good grief. I think it's a little bit easier. We all got these things, right? So next week is the 19th. On the 19th, the 26th, and the 2nd, that gives me three weeks. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Protestant Reformation. We try to do some church history each year. We're going to do some more church history in the fall 
by um, a, a series of videos that we're going to watch on the Reformation that uh, I think you'll really enjoy um, called uh, This Changes Everything. And uh, uh, it's going to be a, a survey of Roman Catholic theologians and, um, Rome, and uh, Reformed theologians uh, being interviewed about uh, the Reformation and the doctrines of the Reformation. And I think it will be really helpful and enjoyable for us this fall to go over that. Um, however, the, over the next three weeks, I want to talk about something that often gets overlooked and is kind of one, one narrow area of Reformation history um, that I've spent some time of study on uh, the last five, six years or so, and especially over this past year working on a book, uh, and that's the, the Reformation, what happened to the Reformation in the country of Italy. Uh, whenever you go to Reformation conferences, you read about the Reformation, it's all Germany, England, uh, Holland. Um, well, what happened in Italy? And uh, very few people know, and there's some really interesting stories and things that happened. And in many ways, um, that was really the, the center and the heart of the Reformation was around uh, in the country where Rome and, and the Vatican is. And so I want to talk a little bit about that over the next three weeks. I think you'll really enjoy it and appreciate it. I hope it'll, it'll be encouraging to us all. But today we're going to, uh, so we'll just, that'll be a three-week pause in the Heidelberg Catechism. So we'll have kind of bookends on that uh, that will be on Christ's resurrection. So let's look at this today. Uh, question 45. Uh, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. So notice that there's three things here that the Heidelberg says benefit us because Christ has been raised from the dead. Uh, his resurrection is, is, is so important. You know, it's not a, a resuscitation that, oh, he came back to life and then he flew off into heaven. Um, that's kind of how I thought of the resurrection as a kid, you know, hearing the Easter story. I never really, I never connected the dots between Christ's resurrection and the significance of that resurrection um, and what the resurrection is. The resurrection is not a resuscitation. People often confuse those two words. What's a resuscitation? Something like that, right. Yeah. Um, it's what uh, Jack Bauer used to do on every episode of 24, right? It's like, come on, kill the story already. Uh, you come back to life. Um, Lazarus was a resuscitation. He'd been dead for four days. Well, that's pretty amazing. That's only by supernatural power. Um, nobody has been resurrected except for Jesus Christ. And this is, a, this is something that gets, a lot of Christians get confused about. Um, there's only one resurrected person, and that's Jesus Christ. He has entered into a new state of, uh, human, of human being, which is that state for which God had ultimately planned us in the beginning, a glorified state of human existence. This body, same body, but a glorified version of it. 
And only Jesus has that. All the rest who are connected, uh, the harvest that is connected to that first fruits, that first sheaf, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, will come on the last day. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But notice that there's three benefits. And in theology, the benefits that are listed here in question 45, we can call uh, Christ's resurrection guarantees to us our justification. What's the next one there? Yeah, sanctification. And then the last one, glorification. This is the complete package of salvation. Your salvation involves all of this. Um, Christians often talk about this as being salvation alone. When did you get saved? That means, when did you put your faith in Jesus? And you know that God uh, pronounces you as righteous. Okay, well, that's not the completion of salvation. Jesus, and let me make this very clear, Jesus has done all the work. There is no work left to do. He has finished the work. But all of the work that he accomplished has not yet been applied to you. Only some of it has been applied to you. This has been applied to you. This is being applied to you. Hasn't yet been completely applied to you. And this one day will be applied to you. On the last day. This doesn't happen until Christ returns. This doesn't happen when you, when you die and you go to heaven. This happens when Jesus Christ returns on the last day and soul and body come back together. And that is when our salvation is complete. In other words, it's been completely applied to us. Any questions on that? I want to make that very, very clear because a lot of Christians are confused about that. Yeah, Brett. Yeah, you know, like the Heidelberg says, you stop sinning. You don't sin in heaven. So you're fully sanctified in the sense that you're not battling a sinful nature anymore. But you don't yet have your glorified body, which should really um, cause us to be careful about the way we speak about people who have died and are in heaven. The Bi- How does the Bible speak about people who have died and gone to heaven? Does it say that they're playing golf and throwing football passes? Yeah, it calls them sleeping in Jesus. Because the body, not that there's soul sleep, okay, but Paul says sleeping in Jesus all over the place. When Christ returns, 1 Thessalonians 4, he'll bring with him all those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, when you die, the body doesn't move. It looks like it's sleeping. The soul, the conscious being, is separated from the body, goes to be in the presence of the Lord. Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 5. On the last day, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, Matthew 24, uh, all over the place, bodies will come back together again. Glorification is done, and this is on earth, here on earth. Another thing that many Christians are confused about, that heaven ultimately will be here on earth, a resurrected, glorified earth. And we will enjoy uh, uh, bodies now that are free from sin. So sanctification is complete at death for your soul, but not yet your body. Your body will no longer be corrupt on the last day. Yeah. Um, so how do we say, like in Romans eight, you know, it says those whom he called, he, or those whom he called, he also justified; those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right. It's kind of like past tense. That's right. Yeah. Why does he use that past tense? Great observation, Ruby. Great observation. 
So Paul there, what is he doing? He's talking about, he's giving what we call the golden chain of salvation. So think of a chain, you know, chain links, right? Make that one complete there. Solder job wasn't done very well. There we go. And so what do you have here? He says, you know, those whom he predestined, uh, the point is that he's making, I mean, he could just as easily say, one day we'll glorify, but he puts it all in the past tense to show how the, the chain of salvation is linked. It's all in past tense. Those whom he predestined, he also called, past tense. I think it's a, um, what is that? the Greek scholar here. It's a, I think it's a past participle, isn't it? <laughs> we'll ask uh, one of the STEM students here. I think if we go back and look at it, I think it's a past participle. Uh, called, those he also justified, he, and he also glorified. It's not that anybody has been glorified. That's not his point. Well, I always got to go up and say, what's the point he's making? The point he's making there in Romans 8 is to say that if God has done this, surely he will do this. That the chain is linked. And that you, you're, you're not going to be separated from God's love. And that's, that's the conclusion of his point. That as, you, as the process is set into motion by the grace of God, God will see it all the way through which is the point he's making all the way through um, chapter 8. And so by putting it in the past tense, he's really showing the certainty of it all. It's not that it's something that's already been done. If that's the case, then it would be in conflict with everything else that the New Testament says. Yeah, Chris? Okay. Go, go ahead, Bob. We'll listen to you. So, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He, does, he, he withdrew his question. So... <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay, in Hebrews, when he says that yeah, the just are perfected, we, let's see what you were, we're talking about there. Yeah, I think it's in, um, is it 12 or is it in Hebrews 2? Because there's a couple places I think he says that. Um, uh, are you talking about, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering? For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Is that what you, is that the passage? 1223, let's see. And to the assembly, oh, yeah, yeah, right. We always read this, right? And to the assembly, yeah, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Right. So what's he talking about there? The spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is done. But he doesn't say the bodies. So, so we are body and soul. What's another word for soul? Spirit. Spirit, right. Spirit and soul is the same thing. Yes, I know what Paul says in, in, uh, to the Thessalonians, but there he's just heaping terms upon terms, the same way he says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and other things, uh, joints and marrow. Your, your two parts, body and soul, and soul and spirit are used interchangeably throughout Scripture. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I can't think of the word now. Sarks, no, no, soma, pneuma, and, um, <laughs> thank you, suke. Thank you, who said that? Who'd got it? Had a boy, good job. Uh, and suke. Uh, sarks is flesh. Um, so, uh, uh, suke and pneuma are used interchangeably to speak of the immaterial being, who you are apart from the body. And that becomes perfected at, at death, 
your sanctification is complete for the spirit, for the soul, but not for the body. So let's look at, at, how, he, um, at how he says these things. But any other questions? I want to make sure that we're clear on, um, uh, on what it means that the application of your salvation is complete on the last day. Okay, so let's see what it says. How, how, does Christ benefit, or how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, right? So he's no longer dead. Body and soul are back together. He's breathing, heart beating. So that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. And then notice that one of the passages it refers to is uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, which is a great passage where it says that Christ was raised for our justification. Uh, Romans 4.25, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now what is that doctrine of justification? It's God's, yeah, God's uh, declaration of uh, sinners to be righteous. It's where he declares you. It's a legal declaration whereby he says that you're a guilty sinner, but I declare you righteous in my sight by virtue of the righteousness of my son, which has been credited to you. Uh, he doesn't say you're righteous because you are righteous. He says you are righteous because you have Christ's righteousness imputed to you. Big difference. If we were righteous, then we wouldn't sin. We're still sinners. But we are considered righteous. We are counted as righteous. We're regarded as righteous. We're declared righteous by God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Big difference there. In fact, that's in many ways what the Reformation was all about. Um, the, the Rome had adopted, or the, the medievals had adopted, in large measure, this idea that God can only say what he says about things because they are what they are. Um, it was a, philo a system of philosophy called realism. In other words, he can't declare you righteous unless you really are righteous. And so justification is a process, right? That's how the med medievals looked at it. And th at the Reformation, uh, you, know, you have Luther, Calvin, and others saying, no, look, the, the, Paul is talking about a declaration that God makes where he regards as righteous people who are sinful because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them, credited to them, and it's received by faith alone. That's the whole doctrine of justification. What does Christ's resurrection have to do with that? What's the connection between Christ's resurrection and your justification? The acceptance of his sacrifice. So his sacrifice, if, if he hadn't been raised from the dead, would we have any confidence that Christ's sacrifice was accepted by the Father? If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, would we have any confidence that God regards us as righteous, that Jesus was righteous? See, his resurrection is, is his vindication that he truly is a righteous man. How do we know that this Jesus of Nazareth, Yahoo, was really a, the Messiah? I mean, he's a real person like you and me. How do we know he was really the Messiah? How? One reason. He was raised from the dead. That's it. Take that away. He's just one more 
guy dying on a cross, and there were millions of them. Well, I don't know how there are millions, but there were certainly tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, bleeding and dying on crosses throughout the ages. That's the only thing we have to go on. The only reason we can be confident that Christ really is the righteous man and that by believing in him, by trusting in his finished work, we are regarded as righteous as well. That's why if you read the book of Acts, they're always talking about Jesus of Nazareth raised from the dead. That's the point, the the central point of their sermon, is that this is how we know he is the Messiah and the righteous man. There was a hand. Yeah. So, so, um, No, his work is done. He has been, he's lived an obedient life, and he died on the cross. His work is done. How do you know that that was finished? That if he had not raised from the dead, we'd have said, what was he talking about? What was finished? His life? Because he just died, and that was it. It's only because he was raised from the dead that those words, it is finished, mean anything for us. People say all kinds of crazy things when they're dying. How do you know that this Jew... 33-year-old Jew, how do you know he really was God? How can, you, how can you really be sure that this guy wasn't just some other guy? Because of the resurrection. It's only because of the resurrection that the words, it is finished, have any comfort for us. There was another hand. Yeah, Chris. The, uh, I believe it was a scroll I was listening to. He saying that the wages, this makes perfect sense, to believers because the wages of sin is death. Right. And if he had no sin, death cannot hold him. So it just verifies That's that, right. that fact. That He's the righteous man. It can't be any other way. Right. And that means that his righteousness, this was what Paul's saying here in Romans 4, raised for our justification, means that his righteousness is now available for other people so that we can be declared righteous. That's why we love those words, it is finished. It means something to us. But if he wasn't raised from the dead, there isn't, there's nothing. We got nothing not, there's no reason to be a Christian even. Yeah, Dan. Pastor, I mean, we look back and we see the resurrection and it gives us great comfort. What about those that died before Christ, before his death and burial and resurrection? <coughs> yeah. To what extent were they looking forward to that as well? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more shadowy, right? Um, here's a great verse, though, that this is what really began to unravel my dispensationalism. If you turn over to Galatians chapter 3, Paul, in making his argument for justification, says that Abraham believed the same gospel we did. And um, I remember hearing this, I don't know how I missed it before, but the first time I heard it in light of the doctrine of justification, it really blew my mind. It says, uh, verse 7, Galatians chapter 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Because it says there in, in Genesis, quoting Genesis 15, Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed God, and his faith was counted to him as righteous, and he was justified. 
Paul's, so Paul draws upon that in Galatians and Romans to make his argument for justification. The point is, is that the gospel was preached to people before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did that look like? Did, John, did, God, say, did God just quote Gen, John 3.16? Of course not. It was shadowy. You I mean, what, where, where is the gospel first preached in the Bible? Genesis 3.15. And what's the gospel message there? Yeah, what, yeah but what are the words that he uses? Yeah, he's, he will bruise your heel, or, or uh, you shall bruise his heel. He's actually speaking to Satan. You shall bruise his heel, and he shall bruise your head. And Adam figures it out enough to give his wife a name. She's not Eve in the garden. This is another big mistake Christians make. She's not named Eve in the garden. Her name is given to her after they're kicked out of the garden. And what does her name mean? Mother of the living. What, is it, what significance does that have? They didn't get to the tree of life. And now they're out of the garden. In the day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Now they begin to die, but there's hope. People always ask me, um, will we see Adam in heaven? And I say, well why, well, why wouldn't we? Well, how do we know he's a Christian? Well, because he named his wife Eve. I mean, just think about it. When does he name his wife Eve? Right after he hears the gospel promise. And the gospel is proclaimed as God is announcing his judgment on the serpent. Saying, saying there's going to be an offspring, a woman. And that first gospel message begins to be built. Is it clear? Is it, you know, there's going to be this guy who comes in, you know, uh, the year uh, uh, zero, uh, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? No, it, it unfolds in, in progress. We call it progressive revelation. More light going like this as you read the Old Testament. So when you read the Old Testament, you want to read it with the understanding that the needle is moving you know, from left to right in the progress of revelation. And that revelation comes most fully in Jesus Christ. But people have enough to put their faith in, in Christ or in the promise, we should say the hope, okay? The hope that God would send a Messiah, one that crushed the serpent's head, uh, one who would overturn death and bring us to the tree of life which, by the way, reappears at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22. In one way, the whole Bible is about two trees and it's about two atoms. And uh, it's about God overturning death. So he's raised for our justification. Without the resurrection of Christ, you have no hope that God regards you as righteous. Then notice the next thing. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. Uh, what's it talking about? It's talking about sanctification. Okay? So all of salvation is in this category of already and not yet. Which is in the already? Justification. Very good. You've been, you've been declared righteous. You're not waiting for that to happen. You've been declared righteous. And when the minister raises his hand in that oath-taking posture 
and says, I de- for all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and confess their sins to God, I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ and by the authority of his word that you have the forgiveness of sins and you're not under the condemnation of God's law. That is God bringing forth his judgment in the future into this present time and saying, I regard you as righteous if your faith is in Christ. That's why we don't want to be moving around and going to the bathroom during that time. That's a holy moment in worship. It's not time to, you know, suck down our coffee or whatever, and you know, uh, it's time to listen to God bringing the announcement of the future into the present and saying, "You are justified." I'll go to the bathroom after that. This is already. What else is already? Okay, so sanctification gets a little tricky. Part of it, right? You are already raised up to new, new life, and yet, who here is already fully sanctified? Who, who here is already, already sanctified? Nobody. Nobody, yeah. I mean, the Scripture sometimes will speak of the word sanctified, because sanctified just means set apart, and sometimes there's places where Scripture will talk about the people of God are set apart. But when we're talking about um, the, the, the uh, progress of God now be making you more righteous, this is imputed righteousness. This is infused righteousness. Yes, Protestants believe in the infusion of grace. It's in the Westminster Confession. And it's a slow progress uh, over time. It's where God is working in our hearts, righteousness. And, it, and it's, it's lengthy. It takes a long time. It's like a tree growing. And so, yeah, we're raised up now, as the Heidelberg says, to newness of life, and yet we are not yet fully sanctified. That happens at death. Um, when does glorification happen? Right, and so that's obviously not yet. Which is why Rebe asked the question earlier about Romans chapter 8, which is a good question. Why does Paul put it in the past tense? And it's, you know, the context that he's using it in. But the newness of life to which we are raised, okay, is because we now have this new identity with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's so many passages that we could turn to. Um, Romans 6 is one that is used here. Uh, So if we want to look over there at Romans 6 real quick, uh, where Paul talks about our new identity. Our new identity. He says, Romans 6 verse 5, But if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, so we're talking about the future, the body. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has, who has died has also been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, in other words, his death was sufficient for our sins, and so we were crucified with him in that way, we believe that we will also live with him, uh, be glorified. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, okay, your, your body, your mind, your words, your hands, your eyes, your heart. 
Don't present them to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Be what you are. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. And so, in other words, you have a new identity. You have a new identity. Your, your old identity is gossip, being judgmental, uh, you know, speaking evil, having hatred in your heart, um, being full, full of lust, full of pride, being a murderer. That's your old identity. It's not who you are anymore. And so now we're to live in the newness of life, in our new identity. When we go back to those things, okay, we're, all we're doing is we're trying to live in the old ways and in an identity that is no longer ours. And uh, how do we, what's the power that we have working in us uh, so that we are being sanctified? Power of the Holy Spirit. And who raised Christ from the dead? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. All over the New Testament is what it says. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and has united you with Jesus Christ. So Christ's resurrection is what gives me hope as a sinner struggling with sin. To know that, you know what, if Christ has been raised from the dead, God will bring me to completion. It may be a slow process, and I still fail and get it, and get it wrong, but He is working in me. And I can continue to confess my sins, repent of my sins, not make excuses for my sins, not deflect my, my blame to somebody else, um, point the finger, but rather I can say, yes, I'm still, I am a sinner, but by God's grace, He is working in me because Christ has been raised from the dead. As surely as Christ has been raised from the dead, God, God regards me as righteous. As surely as Christ has been raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit is at work in me right now as a new person. And as surely as Christ has been raised from the dead, I too one day will be raised from the dead. And that's the last one. Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. And uh, you know, one of the great passages that it refers to there is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great lengthy argument about um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, verse 12, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. Because they were saying that, sure, Christ has been raised, but we're not going to be raised from the dead on the last day. Remember, they are uh, Platonists. They, they have bought into that idea uh, perpetuated by the philosopher Plato and so many other Greeks that later blossomed into something called Gnosticism that separated the material from the immaterial uh, and the physical from the spiritual and looked at all of the physical and the material as being uh, inherently evil, and how can how can it be that we would reassume all of that? The salvation is the soul escaping from the body and being free, you know, to become part of the one universe. 
And uh, so Paul's correcting that and saying, look, if we're not raised from the dead, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead because they're linked. And he says, uh, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, two Adams. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall, also, shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, there's the first resurrection. Notice, notice what it says now. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Uh, no rapture, no millennium. Um, it's not in the Bible. Um, instead, what's he talking about? He's talking about the salvation that is not yet. So Christ has been raised from there. There's a couple of analogies you could use. Think of like an iceberg. Okay? Big iceberg. And uh, this much of it is exposed. That's Christ. Glorified, raised from the dead. These are all those united to Christ. It's one body. It's one mass. But all of this has not yet been exposed. There's going to come a time on the last day when it's all exposed. Think of a, a train winding on a track and it goes through a tunnel. A long, long tunnel. If you've been to Switzerland, they've got these long tunnels. It feels like you're never going to get out of them and, uh, in the Alps. And then the, the engine emerges. And you snap a picture. That's Christ. All the rest of that train is still in the, in the tunnel, but it's connected. Or you think of a harvest, as Paul is saying. A barren field. Looks like death. First sheaf pops up. Ah, the harvest is going to come. And sure enough, the full harvest comes, and one crop is, is, uh, is harvested uh, at, at harvest time. Paul is using that same imagery here to show that Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that all the rest is coming. Because we're united with him. We cannot, we cannot but be united with him. But that happens on the last day. The, when you're, the application of your salvation is complete. That's when we raise our glasses, as uh, uh, Isaiah 25 says. And we eat rich food, good meat, full of marrow. Which, that's interesting imagery. Hmm? Are we going to be vegetarians in the resurrection? Let that one simmer for a little bit. Huh? I got some thoughts on that. And uh, we won't go into that lest you all get freaked out. But, uh, the, you know, uh, we're going to eat good food and drink good wine. And we're going to raise our glasses. We're going to toast the Lord Jesus and give thanks to him that we're there. He's the host of the party. He's the one that's brought us. He's the one that's clothed us or acceptable and the one who gave himself for us so that we would be there. We're going to see him face to face. And he'll forever be in a body. And we'll forever be united with him. 
That's what we have to look forward to. So what is it that we're complaining about in this life? <laughs> if that's what you have to look forward to. Really, what is it that we're moaning and groaning about and complaining about all the time? If that's what we have to look forward to. If it's all a myth and a mystery, then don't come to church. Go spend your time doing other things. But if it's true, then how can we not smile? Okay, yeah, this life is hard, but there's some good stuff yet to come. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, I'm already, in, I'm already regarded as righteous. And God's working in my life. He hasn't abandoned me. And I'm going to be glorified one day. That's good news. Any questions or, or thoughts on that? The connection of Christ's resurrection to our salvation. Right. Yeah, so the, the transfiguration was in Matthew 17, I think. He's, uh, that's good. And then well, who are these guys, Moses and, and Elijah? I thought you said, Pastor, that there was no resurrected people. Oops, I forgot about them. No, this is what it is. It, what's the transfiguration? It's a vision that they see. What's happening there? They're on a mountain, and a huge cloud comes. And so what does that remind Peter, James, and John of? Sinai. Big mountain, cloud, glory. That's why they're freaking out. And all of a sudden, they look. Jesus is glowing. He looks beautiful. They get a glimpse of the future glory. God's just giving them a vision, of a, a little glimpse of what glorified life is going to look like. They're blown away. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear. Now, can God make people appear temporarily if he wants to? That, you know, they haven't yet been glorified? Of course he can. I mean, any pre pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God uh, in Old Testament history uh, is another example of that. I mean, you're talking about the Creator God. He can give a temporary body for His purposes in redemptive history to reveal something. But what's so great there is, is that all the imagery. They're seeing a glimpse of the glory in this transfigured body and uh, uh, you know, the future brought into the present and now Moses and Elijah appear, which represents what? The law and the prophets. And then they hear a voice from heaven. And what does the voice say? Anybody remember what the voice says? This one right here is my beloved son. You're all freaking out because, uh, you know, to, to the three Jews, you're all freaking out, freaking out about seeing Moses and Elijah. I mean, that, that's just, you can't get bigger rock star than that. He says, but this one here is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, he's greater than the law and the prophets. He fulfills the law and the prophets. He's the very one that spoke the law and the prophets. That's the whole point. And then you've got to love Peter in that situation. What does Peter do? You know, James and John are just on their face. And Peter's just freaking out. Cloud, you know, Lord, it is good for us to be here. How about we build three tabernacles? You know, one for you and one for... John and James, like, you know, <laughs> gotta let. Peter's just, I love the guy because he's extroverted like me, sometimes stupid like me, and says things, you know, that he regrets like me. And, uh, but, you know, he's often saying what we're all thinking. <laughs> and uh, it's, you gotta love him, that, you gotta love the Lord for putting him in the, the biblical story. But yeah, good question. Other questions? The connection between Christ's resurrection and our salvation. Because as your pastor, I want this to be clear in your minds. You know, one of my jobs is to prepare you for death. 
yeah, I prepare you for life, but you know, really, I'm preparing you for death. And because if, I, if you're not prepared for death, and then I come to your deathbed, it's too late. So I prepare you for death every day, because we all know you're going to die a long time from now, right? Kid on, my, kid, uh, on the street, uh, two blocks from me, uh, killed on uh, last Tuesday night, walking across the street, 11 o'clock at night, him and his buddy, two 16-year-olds, um, hit by a car. Car, his life's over, just like that. We don't know when we're going to die. Uh, so my job is to prepare you for death, either your death or death in your family. And the greatest way I can do that is to help you know what the Bible says about God's grace, about the finished work of Jesus Christ, and about the connection between his resurrection and your justification, sanctification, and one day your glorification. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then that means you who put your faith in Jesus, according to the Bible, God declares you as righteous, is working in your heart right now. And even the doubts and the struggles that you go through, he's using and his evidence that the Spirit is at work. And one day he will, he will glorify you because you're connected. You're part of that same that mass that's connected to his resurrection. All right, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us to consider these wonders of your mercy and your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, we thank you for his resurrection. We thank you that it was seen by many witnesses, that it was recorded, and that the evidence, Lord, is so clear and so full that we would be fools to disbelieve it or to reject it. And we thank you, Father, that... The Holy Spirit has raised him from the dead and one day will raise us from the dead and has already united us to him so that we walk in newness of life and that because Christ is raised, Lord, that you consider us to be righteous in your sight. Father, thank you for these wonders. Forgive us for our complaining and for taking our eyes off of Christ and putting them upon the difficulties of this life as if Christ hadn't been raised from the dead. Forgive us, O Lord, we pray for our lack of faith. Help our unbelief. And we thank you for your revelation that is so clear. Fill our hearts, we pray, Father, with joy and wonder for your amazing grace to us in Christ, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.